0: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Justin Torres, who is the author of We the Animals, which was translated into 15 languages and was adapted into a feature film. His short fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, Granta, Tin House, and The Washington Post. He lives in L.A. and is an associate professor of English at UCLA. And his new novel, Blackouts, have made the shortlist for the National Book Award for Fiction. Congratulations, yeah. Justin.
1: Thank you so much. I yeah, just learned this morning. So no,
0: uh, it's yeah. new.
1: It's very new. Uh, I'm very excited. And like I said, I'm a little bit underslept. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I, I want to start out by asking your guidance for how to talk about this book. Starting with the idea of someone is telling us the story. Are we calling this person the narrator? Yeah. Is it you? (laughs) Does it matter?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the great question. Does it matter? Um, I think that I'm definitely calling the person the narrator, the kind of unnamed narrator. Um, It is a bit of a puzzle of a book. And one of the things that it's drawing attention to is this kind of, um, you know, this, this, Blurring of fact and fiction, right? And and what goes into writing about history and fiction in a fictional way, and how you know, and so it's it's drawing attention to a certain kind of artificiality, and I think that it's also clearly points towards me. I mean, I, I think it's not, it's not like a question that surprises me that you would ask. It, it, of course not. <laughs> yeah. And no, the, I read
0: your piece about um buying a leather jacket for a dog in the New Yorker. <laughs> yeah. And exactly. that that was nonfiction there. So
1: Yeah, exactly. There's there is explicit kind of um pulling in of, of nonfictional things that I've written and also fictional things that I've written. And then there's the there's these end notes at the end that further seem to kind of muddy those waters about what, what exactly this is. But um yeah, I mean I think that with my first book, there was so much attention on my own biography and the way that it overlaps with uh, with with the novel. And I think I wasn't really prepared for that or I didn't, I don't know, I just, I was green. I, I'd never had a book in the world. I didn't know what it was going to be like. And this time I knew that that was going to happen. And I was like, well, let me have some fun with that. let me let me like let me ask let let me hope that people ask well does it matter right like i'm I'm glad that that was the the last question you asked right doesn't matter
0: well i mean it, it seems like one of the things that we're told over and over in this book is that ambiguity is okay we have to learn even as readers to be okay with what we don't know because we don't know if it's we don't know it because it was never written down or because the author simply didn't want to tell us or doesn't know themselves. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that that is, um, you know, that's kind of like Keats's idea of negative capability, right? Where it's like you're able to sit in this place of ambiguity and you're not trying to like desperately reach for some kind of decisive conclusion either way. And I think that like this whole idea of blacking out and And having incomplete pictures. And I mean, it's a a book a lot about looking at the past and especially looking at the queer past and looking at histories that were never meant to be recorded. Um, And what you find there is a lot of gaps. And how do you you sit with those gaps and not rush To And and yeah, so,
0: sorry, the the narrator of, of the novel is presented with this book. Um, sex variants, which of course I googled right away and found for forty five dollars on Abe AbeBooks. I wonder if that <laughs> will change next week. <laughs> and it it's blacked out in many ways. In a way, it felt like it could almost be it could be blackout poetry, but it also could be like a FOIA request about Donald Trump. But <laughs> you know, like <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think that I was really interested in like this. Yeah, this idea of redaction, right? And and like. And like a kind of erasure that is frustrating that is um and then also the the kind of creative potential for blacking out as well right like this you can you can you can make poems out of out of these kind of documents and the, what what was my experience of reading the original sex fans book which yeah which my book is a lot about this study that happened in the 1930s of all these queer people um, mm-hmm. And it was a very kind of pathological study, right? They're look, they're looking, they're thinking about how to cure this social disease. Um, but that's not how the study started. It actually started yeah. by this this woman. And so there's this overlay of the pathological language on these first person testimonies. And I was just like, how do I engage with all the things that's happening in this book, right? All the different kinds of agendas and voices. And and one of those ways was to just start to black out the text itself. Um, and, like, blacking out is a kind of productive, protective act versus just a redaction or erasure or something.
0: And it kind of creates this this counter-narrative.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this third narrative. Because I didn't feel like I could recuperate the original intention of somebody like Jan Gay, the, the lesbian activist who started this, right? Like, I... I didn't feel like I could get there. I didn't want to just let the kind of damaging medical early sexology language sit by itself. And so there's like this third thing that is, it's very much, again, points towards like an intervention of some kind.
0: So towards the end of the book, the narrator says that John Gay deserved her own biography. And I absolutely agree having read this Novel, learning all about her, and then of course googling and uh, looking her up. Um, tell me about her and how you came across her.
1: Yeah, so uh, I mean that that's wonderful. That is my my hope for uh, the book in general is that people just come like curious and like start googling. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she was she's mentioned very briefly in the introduction to the sex variant study, um, and I had a really hard I knew that somebody had transcribed these testimonies of these volunteers with real care. And I was like, who? Like, like, somebody really wanted to get the vernacular down. Somebody really paid close attention in a, in a way that felt caring. Um, and it kind of clanged with the other agenda of the book. And so I was like, Hoo. anyway, so I started researching Jenga and I found out that she was like a nudist. She was, uh, you know, she was an activist. She came out in the twenties. You know, like at twenty, when nobody did. Um, she she was just an amazing, amazing figure, and she had the idea of doing this kind of research based on Magnus Hirschfeld and this kind of liberatory research. And then, of course, it was stolen from her to do something else. And so, there, there wasn't much I could find. Also, at the same time, like she did a lot. She wrote books on nudity, right? Like. She did. Th- she produced stuff, but then there wasn't biographical information, and so I am really hopeful that somebody will somebody who's a better researcher than I am, <laughs> some biographer will really like jump in there.
0: And and you did th- there some of the sources that you found. Like I, her father was a famous hobo who fell in love with Emma Goldman. Sure, yes, I want to hear all about that. And she was yeah. Saying, Roommate,
1: yeah, 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 I know. It's like she has all these tangential connections to, I mean, like yeah, her father, her father who who abandoned her, but she she made contact with him later in life. But yeah, he was a hobo who became a gynecologist and treated and ministered to like prostitutes and people that nobody wanted to touch, and also became the great love of Emma Goldman's life. And they would tour together and. And I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's an incredible history that she touches, um, You know, sh- like she's at this moment in time where sh- she's directly in contact with these major figures from the turn of the century. And then also the kind of mid-century figures that have become huge, this young Andy Warhol. She lives with him for a brief moment. When before when he's still Andy Warhol, like he hasn't even changed his name yet. Um, he's just arrived in New York and, and and he lands in her kind of apartment, which is incredible.
2: What's a game where no one wins? The waiting game. When it comes to hiring, don't wait for great talent to find you. Find them first with Indeed. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. We streamline hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed's hiring platform matches you with quality candidates instantly, even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring platform delivering four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Maris. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash Maris. Indeed.com slash Maris. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: I love that. Maybe let's, let's go back now and talk about the situation of blackouts, which is that the narrator goes to see this elder man, Juan, who is dying. But one of the things that he says to the narrator, which I love and, and sounds true, is you really ought to know your fairy forefathers. And so the project begins creating a queer archive or, or beginning to look at the queer archive.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes. so so the premise of the book is that this young man in his 20s who's kind of lost in his own life seeks out this guy, Juan Gay, that he knew once. He met him in a mental hospital when he was a teenager like, and one, finds Juan on his deathbed. and. Juan is like one of the great things that Juan does for the narrator is he's kind of like, get over yourself a little bit. You know, there is a vast history and you should know it and you should, you should think about queer lineage and you should think about some of the questions that are haunting you that you're asking that maybe people have thought about in other places Mm -hmm. in literature. And, you know, and he provides this very like therapeutic mentor, like, like, role for the narrator, um, but also encourages him to like laugh at himself as well, right? Like, like he's also really good at it's this kind of camp sensibility that I think someone of one's generation, it was integral to, to the sense of queer identity, right? it's like, you have to be able to laugh at the cosmic joke. And if you can't, you've got to learn because otherwise it's just self-obsession and tragedy, right?
0: And and then you have to learn how to talk about the worst thing about your mother and make it fun. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Tell me about your mother, but make it terrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, because, which is, yeah. I think, I think that they have, they have this really lovely long book, long conversation. Like the whole book is, is a, um, is a dialogue and, and it's, Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's it's the it's Juan initiating the narrator into a certain kind of exchange, right? Um, Which is, yeah, the tragic alongside the comic, right? That there are always two sides of the same coin.
0: Absolutely, and I love a little later in the book when we get to the point where Juan challenges the narrator to tell a story as if it were a movie, and that then brings the visual world so much more into it. And it, it gives you the, it gives the uh, ability to cut and edit in a way that Alex feels different from, from book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was, that was something that I was, I had written the book and it was taking the form of this dialogue between these two characters. I, I was, you know, i had done all different kinds of drafts of it. And then I reread, um, Kiss of the Spider Woman by Manuel Puig. And I'd read it a long time ago and it blew me away. And as I was writing it, I was like, oh my God, this is what I'm doing. Like I've got two people in a room talking to each other for the entirety of the book. And then I was like, oh, what Puig does is he has these, he has Molina, one of the main characters narrate these movies, and what that allows for, the kind of imaginative possibility of getting them out of the room and into and dreaming their way into other places, I was like, that is brilliant. I'm just going to steal that or I guess pay homage to it. I'm very, I'm very explicit that 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 this is what you know, Juan is very but Juan is like a very literary character. So he's like, let's do this. Let's let's do this thing that Puig does. Um, so yeah.
0: It hadn't occurred to me that this the place where they're having a conversation is, is just called the palace. Yeah. Um, and of course, one of the questions that comes up, I think, for me anyway, as I was reading, um, was, is this a mental hospital? Is this a prison a plague? Is it something else? Yeah. And um, tell me about that certain ambiguity, I guess, is the way I'll phrase that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that in the beginning of the book, the narrator kind of heads out to find Juan and he just knows that he's in the desert. And he and and I, my intention was that as you start reading, it just starts to feel like you're stepping slightly off the world, right? Like you're stepping slightly out of time. Like all of the normal concerns and pressures of our mundane life, they kind of just evaporate. And they're ju- he just arrives at this place called the palace, which is, yeah, I think it's It references the mental hospital it references kind of single room occupancies, you know what I mean where people who do who don't have family or don't have a lot of money like living precarious lives you know often end up um, it references a like a lot of these kinds of spaces where um you know where where people feel isolated and cut off from the world and I wanted I wanted the reader to feel like it's this has kind of a liminal space. It's, is, is this where am i does it matter right like like and and to be yeah, really ambiguous about about whether this is kind of reality reality or whether this is some slightly removed place um and that was that i was thinking a lot about um uh Pedro Botamo by Juan Rufo and the way that that book opens is This is the way my book opens (laughs) back, where somebody's like, I'm going to venture off to this place, this town. And then as you read the book, you're like, maybe this, maybe this is, maybe this is purgatory, Maybe this is hell. I don't know where I am, right? I'm not in, not in reality in the same way.
0: And then on the other side of things, of course, you have so many different kinds of literature that you reference and some that I wouldn't say is literature, but I was so fascinated that there are two things that we should know about the DSM for the sake of, of this book. <laughs> <laughs> which which Juan calls Biblia Loca feels just about right. Yeah. And I think I knew that until very recently, homosexuality was a condition in in that you could find in there,
2: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. that is I think I think, yeah, I think that's pretty well known, right? that that um, that it was a diagnosis,
0: right um, but what I didn't know is that there was a thing called Puerto Rican syndrome,
1: I know it's wild. it's it's absolutely wild. i mean, um i didn't I didn't know this either until until very recently, but a, a friend of mine. A colleague at UCLA recommended that I read this book called *The Puerto Rican Syndrome*, um, and it's um, by this woman who's a Lacanian psychoanalyst, and she's she does this amazing job of of thinking her way through. Of where did this diagnosis come from? Why? Like, how how can, how can you come up with this diagnosis? Right? Like, it it it's just and in, in what its relationship to colonialism is, what its relationship to... It's a great book. I highly recommend reading that book. Um, and for the purposes of of my novel, I was really interested in studies of deviance and how much of kind of identity formation comes out of a reaction to stigma. and um, And I think that it's something that Oftentimes people just want kind of positive stories and they want to reclaim history and they want to, they want to be proud and they want to amplify what is kind of ennobled and, and dignifying about their culture. And that's great. And look, we need to do that. Like, absolutely. <laughs> like, absolutely. But I'm also really interested in, in stigma and shame. And this book is really interested in stigma and shame and, and how, um, and like you know, and how we're seen and perceived by the uh, by the majority culture, and so Puerto Rican syndrome is just it's fascinating. It's, it's absolutely fascinating, and it's a lot like hysteria, right? Like, yes, like this idea that women somehow have this mental illness that is related to their anatomy,
2: physiology, mm-hmm. right?
1: Like, and yeah, you know, and and that there could be something about Quirking themselves, right? That's inherently
0: yeah. Um, and and then on the other side of that, that brings me to Edna Thomas, who a lot of us first learned about in Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiment.
2: Yeah. yeah,
0: and she just so happens to be a participant in in this study that that Jan Gay had originally uh, started doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are so few people that I could directly identify as being participants in that study. Um, Anna Thomas was one of them. The other was this guy, Thomas Painter, who was a contributor to the study and also a researcher himself. And um, But Anna Thomas, I'd made her a character and started thinking about her. And then that, and then that book came out. and um, Beautified. Oh my it's, gosh! It's so amazing! Like, it's so great, and I just could not believe. And and that that also that here was Edna Thomas, like that somebody else was like, you know. But but she's she's an amazing figure, and much much more could and should be written about her. So, but I was like, I, I was so delighted actually when I read Hartman's book and her account of Edna Thomas. Uh, but also I was just like, wow, what, what are the chances? <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, yes, yeah, she was, she was so amazing. I think also because she was really, she was a super successful actress, right? Super successful black actress and, you know, in the thirties and forties. And um, she was, she was in both the stage and film versions of Streetcar Named Desire playing a Mexican, which, Fascinates me as well, uh, and her testimony in the book. She's she's so comfortable, right? Like some of the some of the Barryman fans come in looking for a cure. Some of them come in incredibly depressed, by living under all this shame and stigma. Some of them come in incredibly confused, and some like the Thomas just come in poised and like yes, <laughs> and and just you know like she's. There's something about her that I think is she had a, she had a very difficult early life, um, which I don't know. There's some inner resource that she had. I think that was just incredibly striking when you read her testimony. Which is her the name they give her in the book is
0: Pearl. One of the other integral parts of in her story that we find in the book, of course, is is the photos of her and the photos of so many people and who are referenced in the book or who are around. Tell me a little bit about Blackout, the book, as a physical object.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know I'm not a trained researcher in any way. I'm not a historian. I'm not a scholar. I'm not somebody who's just like did a PhD and spent eight years in the archives. And so my experience of, Doing this kind of work for this book was just like, what? There's so much ephemera. And there's so many, there are like, like documents and letters. And like, in but how do you put it together? And and it just seemed like there was these enormous gaps between things. And I was constantly making up narratives. I'd find one image, I'd find something else, and it'd be like, are these related to each other? I don't know. And and so I wanted to kind of replicate that for the reader, where you just encountering an image and it and it's and you can make a connection to why it's showing up that moment in the text right but it's yeah. not explicit right there's something <laughs> ambiguous about it like and it's it's a challenge and an invitation to make these connections and read the image in a certain way and so i think that it's it's a book a lot about reading and being able to read and, and the importance of that um and it's like again yeah i invite I invite the reader to just be like, huh. <laughs> this picture, why here? why now? Um who might these people be? How might they be related to the text? And then, of course, there are these end notes at the end, which you know, which I think satisfy some of that, but not all of it, right
0: I think that's right at least in my experience, but it it I love I've seen some great fiction with end notes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's my my favorite new genre and i also sort of want to talk about the act of naming things because you you talk about jan gays original name and her wife's mm-hmm. and the power that they got by by renaming themselves and then when w- once we're like sort of clear on that in the blinkered endnotes, we get this kind of vocabulary word list.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I actually, I made a zine out of the vocabulary because there is an appendix that is just queer slang vocabulary of the time. And one page of that is reproduced in Blackouts in my book. But there's it's an entire glossary at the end of the actual study, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating how many of those words continue on in, in queer slang, and have some of them have even moved into kind of mainstream terms. And then all these ones that like like horsewoman and like church mouse. I mean, it's terms that have that have not live on have have, have been evaporated. Um, but I think that the naming that about Jan and and Zenya Gay that you mentioned, um, those are not their original names. And gay is one of these slang words that moved into the mainstream, but wasn't so mainstream at the time that they renamed themselves gay. So it was a, it was a massive kind of signal to every, anybody who was queer, right? Like they know what gay man and certain straight people as well. But it was, it was ambiguous, right? It was ambiguous choice. Um, but a really bold one nonetheless. They both mutually changed their names to the same last name, Gay. Um, and then their first names are both, if you read them, are ambiguous, right? Jan mm-hmm. was at, the, at that time was as much a man's name as a woman's name, right? It pronounced it would be pronounced yeah. Jan. There's all these Scandinavians. And Zenya is inherently ambiguous in the Russian. It, it's, it's male or female. And so they have these names that the dark paper that side by side, they write books together. And so side by side, it will say Jan and Zenya and you're like, are these siblings? Are they married? Is this two men? Is this two women? Is this man and women? You don't know. You can't know. Um, and I love that. I think it's. I think it's a really kind of powerful act. So yeah,
0: absolutely. And and I, it, in terms of um, ambiguity, yep. we think about the um, sex variance book was broken up into men and women. <laughs> And what a wrench to throw. Yes,
1: exactly, exactly. Like, it's such a weird distinction, right, For for something that's all about queerness and explorations of gender. And then also the further breaking down of, of homosexuals is the way that they do it is they say there are homosexual cases, there are bisexual cases, and there are narcissistic cases. And I think that that is, like, it's, again it's fascinating like these taxonomies have, have gone away we're interested in other taxonomies now but there's something inherent about any taxonomy that you're just like it draws attention actually to the to, to 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 the cases that don't fit into these easy binaries or whatever yeah
0: congratulations again before we go would you like to recommend a couple of books for us
1: sure yeah um I'm I'm just looking at what is on my desk at this moment, <laughs> um, a book called Bad Girls by Camila Sosa Viada. It's translated. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. And I've been recommending it to everybody. And um, it's called Las Malas in, in Spanish. Uh, a book called Greenland by David Santos-Dowbson, which I'm really, really enjoying. It kind of retells um, the story of um, Forster and his, his lover. Um, and I haven't started yet, but I know I'm going to enjoy Speech Team by Tim Murphy, which is are the three books on my desk, like staring at me at the moment. Yeah,
0: I love that. And then, as I said to you before, there, there's plenty of like, reading material for those people who have read blackouts and want more. And um, so thank you very much. And congratulations again.
1: Thanks so much.